Right, well, the, the order of service had the slightly mysterious title, My Family Motto, which really didn't help anybody who got it, unless they happened to know my family motto. But family history is quite interesting. But um, I've never been made much of an effort to trace my family back more than three or four generations. I do, however, have the cheat version, which is a framed certificate with some of the history of my surname, my family crest, which um, I described as three knights with the helmets kind of stuck down, and even my family motto. Now, there are several versions of what might be my family motto, but one on the certificate is the shortest, easiest to understand, and my favorite. It's not in Latin, doesn't have any complicated words, but immediately struck me as a really good motto to live by. It is, try. I knew I should have played rugby. Thankfully, <laughs> thankfully the uh, rugby contingent isn't in. I don't mean that kind of try. The dictionary definition is, make an attempt or effort to do something. This doesn't mean that you have to be any good at it. But giving something a try can be quite a rewarding experience. I remember sitting in a room in a rather large, detached house near where I grew up. I was four years old, which makes that over 40 years ago. My mum had come to collect me from nursery school. And I remember there was lots of paper around. We'd been drawing arrows. The leader and the teacher at the school held in our house was a Mrs. Evans. And I distinctly remember what she said to my mum that day. He won't be able to draw, she said, as he can't draw arrows properly. So that was it. My future as an artist sealed. I wouldn't be able to draw, and that was it. This comment has been with me through some artistic disasters at school. And then after school, almost every time I picked up a pen or a pencil to draw, this comment would come into my head. So I was on the internet last, uh, the other day, and there was a cartoonist who's made a video called, If You Say You Can't Draw, I Can Prove You Can. I watched it followed the instructions, and lo and behold, I'd drawn my first cartoon. I was so pleased with it that I drew another one and another one until finally I had one that I put on Facebook, and I think I emailed to you. Someone described it as my John Lennon phase. <clears throat> but I tried. Well, succeeded, well, maybe not, but I'd had a go. There have been many instances in the past where people have tried and tried. The legend of Robert the Bruce and the spider. It's said in the early days of Bruce's reign, he was defeated by the English and driven into exile. He was on the run, a hunted man. He sought refuge in a small, dark cave. By the way, there are at least four small, dark caves that claim to be this small, dark cave, but there we are. And sat and watched a little spider trying to make a web. Time and time again, the spider would fall 
then climb slowly back up and try again. Finally, as Bruce looked on, the spider managed to stick a strand of silk on the cave wall and began to weave a web. Robert the Bruce was inspired by the spider and went on to defeat the English at the Battle of Bannockburn. In some ways, it doesn't matter whether you've tried and you go on to military victory, produce a cartoon, which will never make it to the National Gallery. The important thing is to try. Throughout history, and particularly the beginning of the 20th century, there have been people who have tried. You've got 10 out of 10 for efforts, but, well, let's just have a look at a couple of examples. Keeping the Scottish flavour, let me start with William Topaz McGonagall. Now, William Topaz McGonagall is a poet of Dundee and has widely been hailed as the writer of the worst poetry in the English language. A self-educated hand-loom weaver of Irish descent, he discovered his discordant talent in 1877 and embarked upon a 25-year career as a working poet, delighting and appalling audiences across Scotland. His audiences threw rotten fish at him. The authorities banned his performances and he died a pauper over a century ago. But his books remain in print today and he's remembered and quoted long after his more talented contemporaries have been forgotten. In the 1960s, Peter Sellers, that great comedian, actually ran a competition to see whether anyone could write poetry which was worse than McGonagall's. He offered a cash prize and nobody won. For fans of Dad's Army, uh, we're about to hear John Laurie, who was a pretty decent um, deliverer of poetry, of the we are all doomed phase, um, reading McGonagall. I'll spare you the entire poem, but I'll give you a flavour of the first and last verse. The poem commemorates a tragic accident on the Tay Bridge. The Tay Bridge opened in about 1878, two miles from bank to bank. Even Queen Victoria used this marvellous structure. On the 28th of December, 1879, a Force 11 gale blew it down. The section collapsed, a passenger train ended up in the Tay. This is how McGonagall commemorated that tragic accident. I will now recite to you the poem I penned to commemorate that tragic event, namely, the Tay Bridge Disaster. Beautiful railway bridge of the Silvery Tay, alas, I am very sorry to say that 90 lives have been taken away on the last Sabbath day of 1879, which will be remembered for a very long time. Oh, ill-fated bridge of the Silvery Tay, I must now conclude my lay by telling the world fearlessly, without the least dismay, that your central girders would not have given way, at least many sensible men do say, had they been supported on each side with buttresses at least many sensible men confesses. For the stronger we our houses do build, the less chance we have 
of being careful. <clears throat> right, well, what can you say? The stronger we do, our houses do build, the less chance we have of being killed. Surely one of the greatest rhyming couplets um, ever. He certainly tried. <clears throat> um, and um, there we are. The next example is a subject of a film which is out at the moment. Florence Foster Jenkins, played by Meryl Streep. We've been to see this film. She's a hugely rich patron of the arts, putting on professional classical music performances in New York in the 30s and 40s. Florence loved opera. She thought she could sing. Those around her, who she was paying, told her she could sing. Her husband bribed the newspapers to tell her that she could sing. She even bribed individual audience members so they would applaud so that she could tell that she could sing. She thought she was so good, she even had herself recorded. When the recordings were played on the radio, they became a sensation. <clears throat> and indeed, that record company sold more of her recordings than anyone else. This confirmed in her own mind that she was a great singer. You can judge for yourself. She booked Carnegie Hall, um, and 3,000 people heard her sing. Um, and if you watch the film, you can see what happened. <clears throat> anyway, enough of this. What does the Bible say about trying? We have our first reading, a famous story from the book of Samuel, condensed and rephrased as only the message can, otherwise we'd be here all day. Then David took his shepherd's staff, selected five smooth stones from the brook, and put them in the pocket of his shepherd's pack, and with his sling in his hand approached Goliath. As the Philistine paced back and forth, his shield bearing in front of him, he noticed David. He took one look down on him and sneered, a mere youngster, apple-faced and peach-fuzzed. The Philistine ridiculed David. Am I a dog that you come after me with a stick? And he cursed him by his gods. David answered, You come at me with sword and spear and battle axe. I come at you in the name of God of the angel armies, the God of Israel's troops whom you curse and mock. This very day God is handing you over to me. I'm about to kill you. Cut off your head and serve up your body and the bodies of your Philistine buddies to the crows and coyotes. The whole earth will know that there's an extraordinary God in Israel, and everyone gathered here will learn that God 
doesn't save by means of a sword or spear. The battle belongs to God, and he's handing you to us on a platter. That roused the Philistine, and he started toward David. David took off from the front line, running toward the Philistine. David reached in his pocket for a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine hard in the forehead, embedding the stone deeply. The Philistine Philistine crashed face down in the dirt. And that is how David beat the Philistine. With a sling and a stone, he hit and killed him. No sword for David. Surely the only mention in the Bible of coyotes, um, but uh, there we are, that's the message for you. So what, um, what did he do? David was ridiculed, told by Goliath that he had no chance, but David had God with him. He defeated Goliath, a challenge that looked almost impossible at the outset. So what could you try? A painting on DIY day, maybe. We're in the interregnum, as the URC calls it, which literally means the time during which the throne is vacant between two successive reigns. But perhaps more um, helpfully known as the vacancy. Uh, Steve, in particular, said the church will carry on, but there are lots of things that we can all do to help. Our second reading perhaps will inspire us. This is from. Ephesians. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part takes does its work. So what are you called to do? It doesn't have to be high profile. It doesn't have to be becoming the next Billy Graham. It could be vacuuming the hall at the end of the service. Many years ago, as a church, we carried out an exercise to see how many people it takes to ensure that, for example, a Sunday morning service happens. Whilst you see the people at the front, those putting out the chairs, putting them away, sorting out the link, the rotors, the communion, the flowers, the teas, the coffees, the junior church classes, 
all just for this service. What are you going to try? We'll finish. There are very few opportunities to hear the founder of a mainstream Christian denomination speak. Wesley and Henry VIII uh, both died before recording was invented, somewhere before. But there is one, William Booth. The founder of the Salvation Army, recorded in 1906. So that's six years before the Titanic, eight years before the First World War, and 110 years ago. Bear that in mind when you hear what he says, because what he says seems so relevant today. I'm going to put some subtitles up here, because 110 years ago, it wasn't Dolby surround sound, let me tell you. It was more like Dolby needle on a piece of uh, wax. But let's give this a go. William Booth. I am glad you are enjoying yourself. The Salvationist is the friend of happiness. Making heaven on earth is our business. Serve the Lord with gladness is one of our favorite mottos. So I am pleased that you are pleased. But amidst all your joys, don't forget the sons and daughters of misery. Do you ever visit them? Come away and let us make a call or two. Here is a home, fixed in family. They eat and drink and sleep and sit and die in the same chamber. Here is a drunken novel, void of furniture, wife of skeleton, children in rags. Father maltreating the victims of his neglect. Here are the unemployed, wandering about seeking work and finding none. Yonder are the wretched criminals, cradled in crime, passing in and out of the prison all the time. There are the daughters of shame, deceived and wronged and ruined, traveling down the dark inclined to an early grave. There are the children fighting in the gutters, going hungry to school, going up to fill their parents' places. Brought it all on themselves, do you say? Perhaps so. But that does not excuse our assisting them. You don't demand a certificate of virtue before you drag the drowning creature out of the water, nor the assurance that a man has paid his rent before you deliver him from the burning building. But what shall we do? Content ourselves by singing a hymn, offering a prayer, or giving a little good advice? No. Ten thousand times no. We will pity them, feed them, reclaim them, employ them. Perhaps we shall fail with many, quite likely. But our business is to help them all the same. And that in the most practical, economical, and Christ-like manner. So let us hate to the rescue for the sake of our own peace. The poor wretches themselves, the innocent children, and the Savior of us all. The group must help with the means, and as there is nothing like the present, who in this company will lend a hand by taking up my collection. 110 years ago, but you can uh, 
so much about what he says, which is still the same today. I was going to do the collection there, but it was just going to be far too confusing. So, but there we are. William Booth had a very, very strong drive to help the disadvantaged. In fact, uh, he founded a denomination. But perhaps we should think about that challenge. Perhaps, whilst prayer is essential, hymns are part of our worship. Good advice is very helpful. What about you? What will you try? Amen. We'll finish with.